Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Today's episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker and supported by Orgain and Practice Better. Stay tuned to hear more about these amazing companies that I'm partnered with. But for now, let's get to the conversation. Hello, fans and listeners. Lindsay Cortez here, again, your host. And I'm with a guest today, a rock climber, Kyra Condi. Kyra is a 26 year old professional climber based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Kyra was one of four athletes from the U.S. to compete in sport climbing's debut at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. She's motivated by goals in both national and international competitions, as well as outdoor climbing. She's known for her regimented training routine, listening to reggaeton music, and loving coffee. Kyra, thank you so much for being willing to have a conversation with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Absolutely. So I figure since it's in your bio and I am a dietitian, this is a nutrition podcast. Let's dive into your love of coffee first. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I'm also a coffee lover. When uh, when did you start your love of coffee? Let's see. It started probably back in, I want to say 2016. I was hanging out with people who really loved coffee. And so they like showed me the true art of it versus just Starbucks blend, you know? <laughs> and then I actually didn't have anything to make coffee in my own house until the pandemic because wow. uh, I had a friend stay at my house and he was like, it is unacceptable that you do not have anything to make coffee. Like, how are you, like, how are you living? And so then he bought a French press and then as yeah, he's from Peru, which, you know, they're known for their coffee. And, uh, he, as like me letting him use my car and my house while he was in town was like, you can have this, this French press as a gift. And I was like, Oh no, this is a slippery slope. And now I have an espresso machine and an AeroPress and a French press and a Chemex and all of the, all of the coffee. You have, so you have it all. Yeah. It was. You know, I think I've also like, I grew up in a house that had a coffee machine and that's like a very normal thing. So I've come across in life, a few people that like don't do coffee. And I, I'm like kind of similar to your friend of like, how do you not have a coffee machine in your house? And it is crazy. Well, I'm thinking it's crazy. I hope my listeners don't get offended, but some people who drink coffee, but go out to get coffee every day. It's like, this is something you can super easily make in your own home. So that's what I was doing. I was, I would love to go to coffee shops and do homework at coffee shops and stuff. I just was way better at focusing in a different environment. And so that was my treat of going out and doing homework and things like that was getting coffee. And so I was trying to use it to stave my addiction, but it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely understand that. The coffee shop vibe is a special one. It's like, it's fun, it's trendy, and you can definitely focus. I was, even when I first started, because I work from home, Kyra, and like when I first started working from home, I had like 
like every Monday, I was like going to the coffee shop just to get out of the house and like focus and have that different environment. And of course, it's always nice to get your own, like a fancy flavored thing or something or just something different. Yeah. Things that you can't make at home for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now you just, you love coffee. You have all the ways, all the different ways to make it yourself is, is it something you just have once a day or do you find yourself having it a lot or using it even for performance as like, you know, a caffeine boost, a performance enhancer? Yeah, actually, funnily enough, I just took like a 23andMe test and I got this email that says that you might have a higher tolerance for caffeine or you might drink more caffeine than the normal person. Um, and it's because of some sort of gene variant that you can have, I guess. Uh, and I have that one. And I was like, I've always said that caffeine doesn't affect me that much, especially with waking up or things like that. I just like it. And so I was like, maybe that makes sense because personally I can drink like three cups of coffee a day and immediately take a nap. <laughs> it has nothing to do with how awake I am. I feel like it's part of my routine at this point, but I do actually struggle with drinking too much caffeine before climbing or before a competition, especially when I'm nervous, just because I get the jitters. So it's not necessarily that I have more energy, but I can feel it the effects on my body where I'm like shaky. And with climbing, especially when you're stepping on really tiny footholds or trying to grab really small holds and your hand is shaking, it's not ideal. Interesting. Yeah. So you don't notice it from that energy level, but you notice its effect on your nervous system getting you too jittery if you're already in like a heightened state for competition or something. Yeah, exactly. So I have to be really careful about when I drink coffee on competition days, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And yes, I'm forgetting the name of the gene and I might like record myself at the end of the podcast just to let our listeners know. But that is really cool when we start talking about nutrition and genetics. Caffeine was one of the first genes identified as like, oh, this is something that it's like caffeine's response isn't the same on everybody based on your genes. You can be a cat, you can have the gene that means like you're a caffeine non-responder and you can therefore tolerate a lot of caffeine and it really doesn't do much for you. And those are the people that can drink coffee before bed and still fall asleep versus other people, obviously like you drink coffee after noon and you can't fall asleep for the entire next day. So it's genetics. I think that overlap between as we're learning more about our genes and nutrition is really interesting. Caffeine was one of the first genes that we were able to identify having like this really strong like nutrition implication. Yeah, I had no idea about that. I thought that was that was also really interesting to to get, especially having had that inclination about myself to begin with, to then get the confirmation that I do have that gene. I was like, oh whoa. <laughs> I know that's the funny thing about it too, when people are like, should I get the genetic testing? I'm like, well can't you kind of tell? <laughs> Can you tell if you're sensitive to like you can? It's like 23andMe. There's a lot of people who do that for a variety of reasons. And I think there's cool data in there. But yeah, you can kind of tell on your symptoms. So yeah. Yeah. One of the things it told me was that I had a 0.05% chance of being ginger. And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm not ginger. <laughs> you know, so yeah, some of these are pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's quite funny. And I guess any future children might have a 0.05% two, five chance or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Well, Kyra, uh, thanks for sharing your, your love of coffee with us. And, but let's kind of backtrack and talk about just your sport of rock climbing. And I don't think I read it in your bio, but you grew up in, it's Minnesota that you grew up in. Right. And is that a big rock climbing area? Or I didn't think so necessarily. Most people are in Utah, Colorado. Like how did you get into the sport? Yeah. So I started climbing back in, it was probably 2008 or 2009. And it was just at a birthday party at the local gym in St. Paul. I 
yeah, people, it was like the thing to do was have your birthday party at Vertical Endeavors. And so we had the guy there who was helping out the birthday party and he kept telling me to get on climbs. And so I'd get on that climb and I'd do it. And he'd be like, well, you should get on this climb. And then I'd try that one and I would do it. And then at the end of the birthday party, they came over to me and were like, you know, we have a climbing team. And so I joined this climbing team and they were preparing for regionals at the time. So youth regionals. And that's how I saw that there was this whole side of competition climbing pretty much immediately when I joined the team. And so like, I just saw them preparing for it and then knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so I was introduced to it pretty much immediately once I found climbing and started competing right away. Yeah, really cool. You had that natural talent for it that was identified right away. Did you do other sports before that that you think kind of prepped you for being relatively athletic? I would say I was definitely super athletic, but I never really clicked with any other sports that I tried. Yeah. I did some gymnastics. I did some soccer. I did some track and field, but like all, you know, when I was in elementary school into the very beginning of middle school. So, and I would like always take gym class very seriously. <laughs> I was the one who was trying to, you know, be the first place of all the girls in the mile or something like that. So I think, yeah, always was super athletic, but wasn't finding that sport that really clicked. And now I'm looking back and like, I probably would have loved track or something else too, but I love rock climbing. And that's really, once I did it, it was so obvious that that's what was the one for me. Yeah, absolutely. And then as a rock climber, you you joined that team and started training and, and getting to the national level like pretty quickly and everything. And that's a sport that, you know, they don't necessarily have, you know, a high school team or anything. So you did all of this with like the club and organization. Yeah. And the, like, because of that, it was like kind of not cool to be climbing in some ways because, you know, none of my school friends did it. I yeah. had to go to practice at like 6 p.m. instead of right after school. So then I'd miss out hanging in with friends. And so in middle school, that was definitely kind of stressful because I felt like like I wasn't doing the cool thing. And so that's actually when I got my back surgery. So I had scoliosis that I got diagnosed with in 2010. And so that came at this time when I was kind of questioning this choice that I made about climbing and it got taken away from me by needing the surgery. And that's when I really, really realized how much climbing meant to me and that it is what I wanted to do and how much I loved it. Yeah. Sometimes when something's taken away from you unexpectedly, that's when we really realize like how meaningful it was or something. And yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about that part of your story. So it sounds like timeline, if I'm following it right, Kyra, you were climbing for just about two, maybe three years. And then you had that diagnosis of scoliosis. And I'm not sure if you want to share with our listeners, like, I think a lot of people kind of know what scoliosis is, but I don't know if you had more of a specific diagnosis. I mean, needing surgery is a, a pretty big deal. Back surgery. Do you want to share a little bit about like what exactly that was and what that meant? I can only imagine with back surgery, you had some, maybe not, but maybe some professionals being like, oh, climbing might not ever happen again because it's such a big deal. Yeah. So climbing, I started climbing in 2008. I got diagnosed probably very end of 2009 with scoliosis. So probably about two years. And we found it really late. So my scoliosis was already at 52 degrees. And once it gets over 45 degrees, that's kind of when they start recommending surgery. And since I was in the middle of a growth spurt, I, it, it went all the way to 72 degrees before I got my surgery. And that was only like oh three to four months. So it was progressing really quickly. Basically I had no other options of treatment. I had to get surgery. And so they fused T2 through T12. So that's 10 vertebrae. And it's all the vertebrae that are essentially connected to your, your rib cage. And to correct that curve, that was in my back. And so I still have a 25 degree curve, but I can't bend any of those middle vertebrae at all or twist. So the, the R 
or the, or the T vertebrae are all about twisting. And so I have a really lack of mobility in twisting and bending, but can still do a lot of things with the, the upper and lower parts of my back. Yeah. It just sounds so crazy though, thinking about your sport. I mean, sometimes you really have to contort your body in some <laughs> positions. Like there is twisting and bending involved, you know, maybe not to the level of like gymnastics, but like, you know, yeah. how are yeah, you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I think when I was younger, it's, I think getting the surgery when I was young was actually kind of a blessing for that reason, just because I learned how to climb and do a lot of like more intense movements in climbing with already having this limitation. And so I think when from age, you know, since I got since I got the surgery to like almost 19 or 20, I would have said that I barely noticed my back. And then now as I've been like pushing the limits further and further with what I can do and trying to really push myself and get further and further in the sport, now I start really noticing what I can't do since I've worked so much on, you know, what I can do. Right. So right. that's definitely been my mental challenge that I've been working with, especially leading into the Olympics and, you know, coming out of the Olympics is how do I deal with this thing that nobody else is dealing with? Mm-hmm. Sorry, this is like a silly question, but like, how do you deal with it? Are you like, what are some, do you have any like tactics or specifics that you've been kind of working on? Or is it just this gradual learning process of your body every time you get in the gym? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I do is I work with a sports psych and that's, you know, one of the main things that I talk about. And some of the advice that she gave me recently that has actually really, really helped my mindset is it's really easy to look at something like that as pressure or negative and something that's, you know, bad and that you're cracking under. So you you turn around, you see a climb that involves a lot of twisting and bending, for example, and you're just like, oh no, this is, I can't do this. This is bad. But instead of looking at it like that, you look at it as a challenge and something that you need to figure out. And that's just, just that small twist can really make it, make a really big difference in how you're approaching it, even though it's essentially the same thing, like a pressure versus a challenge is the same thing, but it's a positive and negative twist on it. And so, yeah, just having that positive twist. It is. Yeah. Especially if you're somebody that embraces challenge, which I think at this point in your career, you have to on some level in order to have accomplished the things you do. And I think a lot of athletes resonate with that of like embracing the challenge. And I, I totally agree when you say like, oh, this is pressure, putting pressure on yourself is a negative association, but saying, let me see if I can step up to this challenge is a very positive mindset towards something. Exactly. It's just how we do it in society. And it's a little harder just because a lot of those times those climbs also kind of hurt my back. Like I'm not getting injured, but they do hurt. Okay. And so it's, it's kind of using that positive mindset to at least overcome the, like those other negative aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was another question I had for you about it was like, is, is there any pain or anything? So it, it seems like there is, but you know, even if there is pain, but it's not causing damage, like you're not actually hurting yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And honestly, in climbing, there's a lot of things that kind of hurt a lot. Like your toes hurt in your climbing shoes. And sometimes your skin hurts on the holds. And yeah. um, sometimes the holds are just really sharp and small, things like that. And so you kind of get used to ignoring that type of pain that's like not harmful. And so I think I just kind of have to do the same thing with and figure out that difference between what's bad pain and what's fine, I yeah. guess. No, that's so true. I think Pain is really interesting when we start getting into both the science and the psychology of it. And again, it's definitely a very common athlete mindset to like push through the pain. And I think the difference though is like, it's okay to push through the pain as long as it's not truly harmful. Exactly. And that might, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes we 
make the mistake in that evaluation or calculation as to what's harmful or not and kind of learn in hindsight. And sometimes that's where having like, like that's why going to doctors can be so important and to investigate and get your x-rays done or whatever to make sure that you're not harming yourself in pushing through the pain and kind of know where your limits are. So, wow. So I think another thing that you just kind of said as you were telling your story that I thought was interesting is just you got the you know, okay, it it could be considered a limitation, but for nearly 10 years, it it wasn't even considered to be that at all. It's like, I got the surgery, like, and I can still do what I love. And we, you didn't even view it as that. And I think that's so important, whether it be surgery and injury, any other facet of life that maybe the rest of society might think could be a limitation. It's all how you think of it. It's like the only limit is what you're putting on yourself, you know, and it sounds like you just didn't do that from the beginning. You got your surgery done. You're like, I miss climbing. Let me get back into it. And you just did. Yeah. Luckily I did have a surgeon who was really supportive. The first one I went to was, was really not of climbing. He told me I'd have a family one day and that sports wouldn't be that important. So I was pretty much immediately, you know, turned off by that. Didn't want to go see that doctor, told my parents I wanted to find a different doctor. And they luckily listened to me because I was, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old or something. Yeah. And so they listened to my opinion and we went to found a different doctor and he did all the tests himself. He, you know, checked out the the difference in the rise of my shoulders because when you have scoliosis, one is usually lower than the other. Measured all the things, used a protractor, figured out the degrees of things and all that. And he did all those things himself. And then he told me that I would send him a picture of me on top of the podium. And so, you know, I think it was a year and a half after my surgery, I won nationals for the first time, like never won before. Wow. the surgery ever. So I think just that extra motivation of, of overcoming something was like, what did it? And I, I got to send him that photo. So that was really cool. Uh-huh. I love that too. I would never wish for people to go through hardships or anything like that, but it is one of those situations where, well, when we do, as you're in the thick of it and you're, you're going through this hardship or you have this obstacle in front of you, I, again, if you're somebody motivated by challenge, it's like, okay, then challenge yourself to like rise above it. And, you know, what do you want your story to be on the other side of this? And what you wanted was to send your doctor a picture of you on the podium and that motivated you in your rehab and recovery. Yeah, exactly. And and now I think I am the only person to have qualified for the Olympics with a major spinal fusion. So yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> qualified for, competed in. Let, let's talk about that as well, because so Tokyo 2020 Olympics which took place in 2021. I always get so confused. I'm like, am I calling these the 2020 Olympics or 2021? Uh, I think because they officially are still calling it the 2020 Olympics, right? Yeah, it's Tokyo 2020 was the trademark, I think. So they had to keep the trademark. Okay. I know. In my head, I'm like, what do I call this? All right. But that was actually the first Olympic Games of having climbing as an Olympic sport. So not only... Like you said, are you an Olympian with a spinal fusion, but like one of like just part of, you know, the very first wave of of climbing as an Olympic sport, which is really cool. And maybe just for our listeners briefly, and even for me, I have very little experience. I've been to a rock climbing gym a handful of times and and it's very painful if your fingers are not used to it (laughs) and the shoes, like you were saying, it's very difficult, but there's, there's different types of climbing, right? There's bouldering, there's speed climbing. And, and so they were able to kind of figure out a way to incorporate three different types of climbing and do like this average score. Could you tell that to our listeners who maybe aren't super familiar? Like some people just think rock climbing. They just think like going out to the mountains with friends, which is awesome. Yeah. But like, how does it become an Olympic sport? What, what did that look like? 
Yeah. So basically the International Olympic Committee told us that we got one set of medals, but competition climbing in general has three different disciplines, bouldering, lead climbing, and speed climbing. Speed climbing is the, the easiest to understand. It's just the same climb always. Like you can climb the same climb in Paris as you can in Chicago. Like it's the same holds, same set of everything. And so there can be world records and it's just a race. So you get paired up against somebody and you try and beat that person and it's bracket format. And then bouldering is, and bouldering and lead climbing are all about difficulty. So they're usually really challenging climbs. And that's the, the similarity between the two. And they differ in that in bouldering, you don't wear a harness or any sort of safety mechanism, but you don't go up very high. So you only go up to, you know, 10, 12 feet and fall onto a pad if you fall. And so in that one, you get multiple attempts that you have a time limit of five minutes to try and do a climb. And so the best you could do is to get the top. So there's a, there's a hold marked as the top. And so that's the goal of every bouldering climb you do is to get the top. And then in lead climbing, you only get one try. And that's when you have a rope on you and you clip in as you go. And it's more endurance-based. So it's usually more like 50 moves. And so you get scored based on how many moves you do. So if you got to hold 42, you would beat me if I got to hold 38, you know? But obviously the, the best you could do in that is also reaching the, the top hold. Yeah. So it's like the simplest explanation. I guess. Yeah, no, it's a perfect explanation. Perfect. And it's funny because I've, I've read through it before, but it's just great to hear it again. And, but what they did was they combined the three to give one, one medal. Exactly. Since we didn't have uh, the ability to have three medals, they decided to do this combined format just so that we could display like the full depth of competition climbing, I guess, on the Olympic scale. We didn't want to just show speed climbing or just show bouldering. And so this way allowed us to show showcase some of our best athletes in every single discipline, yeah. which I think was a good way to start because now already yeah. for Paris 2024, we have two sets of medals and speed oh. climbing is a separate event. And then we have a boulder and lead combined. So, oh, interesting. On, so it's going to change. Yeah. Cause I was thinking, I was even thinking with gymnastics, I'm like, well, why don't you give individual, like in gymnastics, they do, you can get a medal for vault bars, beam floor for the women's events and then an all around. And I was kind of thinking that, like, why don't they do individual and then the combined? I don't yeah. I think ideally that would be it. We're currently in a time when, when the IOC is trying to get rid of events and get rid of medals because it's gotten too large. Ah. And so. To be a new sport that's actually getting, like gaining medals is, is actually pretty big news when a lot of other sports are, you know, losing medals and stuff. So, which is unfortunate that there's not enough So space. interesting. So many politics around this. It's actually yeah. very political. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting that we're, we're still growing on the Olympic scene as well. But, you know, even this new format isn't perfect and is kind of odd. So we're just getting used to it and hopefully hoping that we only have to deal with this one for another four years and then eventually we'll have all three disciplines. Yeah. Yeah really cool interesting to yeah i'm like oh my gosh this is political you can't just like it's not just what makes sense it's like there's yeah. so much more that goes into it wow really interesting yeah because there's other sports right swimming your track and field so many medals <laughs> there. so many so, medals yeah 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 really interesting hey fans i hope you are enjoying this conversation but an important part of it is a word from our awesome sponsors today's episode is brought to you by inside tracker Thanks to Inside Tracker, I've been able to catch iron deficiency and anemia on two different occasions in the past few years. And with this, I was able to kickstart my recovery to better fueling and workouts without having to coordinate doctor's appointments or wait around for my lab results. With Inside Tracker, I'm able to get my blood drawn whenever I want to and see everything that I want to. Personally, I get the ultimate plan a couple times a year to check up on my blood biomarkers and nutritional status. And thanks to Inside Tracker, I'm able to implement science-based nutrition and lifestyle recommendations immediately after results come in with their user-friendly online platform and personalized action plan. 
This is why I've been able to reverse iron deficiency so quickly because my health is in my own hands when I'm using Inside Tracker. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store by heading to insidetracker.com forward slash rise up. There's a lot more that it can show you and that you can do with it besides just your iron. That's just my personal experiences. So again, head to insidetracker.com forward slash rise up. That's R-I-S-E-U-P for 20% off. Back to the show. I think another thing I wanted to ask you about is, of course, your personal journey with nutrition as a climber. And so I think we'll just start with like, at what point, if ever, I shouldn't assume, but at what point, if ever, did you make any connection between nutrition and performance? I feel like that started becoming, I started becoming very aware of that when I started becoming more of an elite athlete. So even on the youth level, like I remember being at pre-nationals camps and everyone would have their like pre-nationals diet. And I remember being like, okay, this seems like a little, little toxic, whatever this is happening. Really? Like you're deciding that you can't eat any sugar or something. And so I think I started, I was definitely really aware of kind of the dangerous side of, of paying too much attention up to it. But I had parents who cooked a lot and, you know, we, we made a lot of food at home. And so I think I was very aware of eating healthy, but not, you know, restricting myself and things like that at a pretty young age. I'm not in the climbing world like you are, but I've had clients and seen plenty of stuff online that there is a lot of restrictive eating in the sport of rock climbing. So is that, did you pick up on that? And just like you said, because your parents like had a good eating environment, like it just didn't suck you in at all. Yeah, I think I did have a, like, I was pretty aware of it as, as a kid, just because I think the climbing community now is a lot more aware of it in general, but back when I was, you know, 15 and pretty impressionable, I would, I'd bring something up being like, Hey, I think this doesn't look healthy. And then someone would be like, no, that's just their natural body type or, you know, things like that. And so you'd get, they were covering it up. Yeah. You'd get your concerns. What's the word invalidated a lot. And I think that was almost even more dangerous and perpetuating the problem even more just because it was just not being acknowledged. So I think it's really good that it's, it's getting acknowledged in climbing right now. But I think we still have a long way to go just to to make sure that that's not a problem. Climbing is a strength to body weight ratio sport. So it creates kind of a natural progression of people thinking that you need to get lighter to get stronger instead of just getting stronger to get stronger. So, right. <laughs> exactly. I love how you just but, said that, right? I am not, we're not trying to deny the fact that there is a weight to strength ratio. And that's the case in, in a, a handful of sports for sure. Like, And this is what's so amazing about the human body too, is that there's different sports that different body types might even, you know, excel more at, you know, being tall as a basketball player is helpful, you know, having maybe some bigger hands to grip a softball is helpful, right? So there's different like body types and strengths and shapes and weights that might correlate. Okay. But like you just said, like if it's a weight to strength ratio, you can just get stronger to get stronger. And also at the end of the day, it's not everything, right? That's not the only thing that dictates performance. There's uh, yeah. 
that's a, a thousand other things that you could expand upon, but your skill, exactly. your practice, your dedication, flexibility, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So I guess like, and I don't know if I'm just like hitting on this too much, but how it, how do you think you were resilient to it? Because I have heard you say before that that's not something you've struggled with, which is great. And I just want to highlight for our listeners that this is not something you ever struggled with and you are the elite of the elite. You went to the Olympics. And I, I really want to say this because a lot of there are like, you know, athletes that are at a higher level that then say like, oh, but it's not healthy or let's not do that. And it's like, no, you made it to the top with never really going down that road. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. And that's actually something that, you know, I felt, I felt weird talking about for a long time since I didn't struggle with it, but I realized that there probably are a lot of, you know, young girls and boys and out there who were kind of in the same position as me, who are like noticing it and maybe not having their concerns, you know, validated. And so I feel like validating that side of it is also really important, acknowledging that it is a problem. And I think that's something that I wish I had when I was a kid and having somebody in my position would have like really meant a lot, not just people who have, you know, gone through it and talked about the, the problems that they had, but also the people who haven't gone through it and saying that they got to where they are by not, by not doing that. I think it's really important because a lot of times if you're only seeing the news of, you know, I've recovered and this is, you know, I was really strong, but now I'm happier and stuff like that can be damaging in its own right, just because it, it makes it look like you have to do that to achieve those things. And so I want to make sure that it's, it's noticeable that you don't have to do that as well to, to achieve achieve greatness, I guess, in your sport. So. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, you know, 110% because I think like, yeah, those stories of recovery are great. And also the stories of being happier and healthier are great, but like a lot of us want to be the best. And so exactly. how do we, yeah. how do we be the best? Well, you are walking living proof that you be, you be the best by taking care of your body and getting stronger and excelling at your sport. And you do not have to go down the path of, of uh, like weird nutrition habits or disordered eating in order to do so. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big, a big part of that is, you know, I, I haven't had any major injuries probably because of, you know, correct nutrition and getting enough protein and getting enough calories and things like that. And so that's something that I definitely don't take lightly and try to make sure I'm always getting enough of those things. Even if I'm, you know, maybe try to cut like a couple pounds for a competition or something, you know, always making sure you gain it back and, you know, do it in a healthy way over a long period of time instead of, you know, by restricting yourself. So, and actually, this is a great conversation to have because I certainly like I on this podcast and in my practice, I'm I'm never really promoting weight loss because I'm trying to like work against the, the I don't know just like hundreds of thousands of messages that are always talking about weight loss, right? But like you mentioned, like maybe there's a situation where it actually could help you going into a comp competition to be two, three, five pounds like at your competition weight or something like that. And so how do you do that? You mentioned over a long period of time, nothing drastic. Like, do you have any specific tips of things in a healthy way that you do focus on and then kind of post-competition, how you handle post-competition as well? Yeah, at least for me, all that really means is like not eating a handful of chocolate chips when I go by the fridge or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't actually try to like restrict anything that I'm eating, but I try to like not unnecessarily snack, I guess is like the main thing. Maybe being more mindful is really exactly. Um, yeah. And then, you know, if I'm in, you know, pre-competition season, obviously I'm increasing training and stuff. And so making sure I'm drinking protein shakes and getting those like macronutrients and then, you know, cutting out, yeah, those kind of unnecessary, like handfuls of chocolate chips and stuff like that, but still indulging in dessert or whatever I want when I, you know, see fit 
it's just like there's like extra things that I'm not when I'm eating when I'm not hungry essentially is is what I cut out and that's usually how I cut out like you know a tiny a tiny amount of weight that is inconsequential essentially but makes you feel ready for competition and yeah and good. inconsequential yeah. to health but exactly. that I'm ready for competition and yeah yeah Th- no this is really I love this Kyra because it's kind of sharing how in normal day-to-day normal training sounds like you have really food freedom of like oh well this sounds good like maybe I'm not hungry but I have the freedom to like eat something just for taste or because I want it or maybe I'm a little hungry and a Snickers bar sounds good so I'm going to choose it and then when we're kind of dialing things in it's just being more intentional of like wait I'm not actually physically hungry right now I don't need to do that or I am physically hungry so what's going to be an intentional snack that's like fueling my body I had a really hard workout. I need that extra protein, you know, whatever it might be. So it just sounds like bringing that like intention and and mindfulness, which is really, really great. Yeah. And I think it makes me feel overall very ready for competition when like my whole, the whole, my whole life is like kind of pointing at it, you know, I, I'm waking up in the morning and going to the gym and then I come home and I eat, I get a really good lunch. And then I go to the gym again in the evening and then I stretch and recover and maybe hot tub, you know, something like all things that I'm doing are in line with the performance that I want to have. And I think that just makes me feel the best when I get to the competition because I know I've been doing everything that I can to to be ready. Yeah, that's really good. That was another like line in your bio too, is, you know, you're known for loving your coffee, reggaeton music, and then also like your regimented training routine. And so part of that too, is like hitting your fueling points in there. Mm-hmm part of that exactly. regimen for you. Yeah. And then in, in more of, I don't know if we would call it off season, but just like no competitions coming up. Do you find not, not only that, okay, my nutrition's a little more flexible, but do you find that just like routines and stuff a little more flexible too, or are you still pretty regimented? Other uh, I'm definitely a little bit more flexible just in like what I, I guess, yeah, I don't follow that exact routine every day or something, yeah. but yeah. Um, I still just love training in general. I think I was talking to someone recently about what my motivations are and whether it's in winning or whether it's in, you know, beating the wall, because in climbing, it's kind of you against the wall. You know, it's not like you're wrestling somebody (laughs) um, where it's like you against them or whether it's like, like what it is that motivates you. And for me, I realized I really just love the feeling of of trying hard and then doing a move, you know, like, so even if it's not getting to the top of the climb or if it's not successfully ascending something is the term in climbing, I just love the feeling of doing a really hard move. And even if I failed on it like five times in a row and then doing it the sixth time, like that's the feeling that I love in climbing and that I crave. And so that's like why I train. And so I love that. And I do that regardless of whether there's a competition coming up or not. Like I just love the feeling of trying hard. Yeah. I, I love that. That's We always need to find our why for anything that we're doing. And although winning feels great, there's so much more to sports. So I think finding a, a why that's deeper than winning is really important. Yeah, totally. And at least with climbing now being my career, I've, I've really loved like having a platform where I can talk about scoliosis and, you know, being healthy and all those things. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. And, and yeah, you're really active on Instagram. I know I'm following you there. You're putting out tons of like, it's just so fun to watch all your climbing videos and stuff. So uh, are there any other platforms that, as you said, you like to talk about these things that obviously you're on podcasts and things like that? Any other platforms that you find you're active on? Um, I've actually just started a TikTok. I, I had a TikTok with my roommate for a long time too that we still have, but we're just no longer roommates. <laughs> so oh. we're, still, we're still climbing roommates on it. We're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 
but we, we started our own individual TikToks now too. So that's my, my new, I guess, platform where I'm trying to show a slightly different side than Instagram. I feel like Instagram is kind of a more curated side of a lot of people's lives. And I, a TikTok almost feels a little bit more chaotic. <laughs> I'm not sure why, um, yeah. but that's kind of how I feel about it. So I kind of want to show a little bit more behind the scenes almost maybe on TikTok. Yeah. No, I can agree with that. I think Instagram has become like a very brand or businessy, like what you're putting yourself out there for like to represent yourself almost on Instagram. Maybe that's because Facebook took it over. I don't know, but <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, well, awesome. Um, I, yeah, I definitely, I think following you on Instagram, maybe now on TikTok, what's the TikTok handle? It's just the same as my Instagram, Kyra okay. underscore Condi. Kyra underscore Condi. Awesome. Well, Kyra, this has been really awesome to chat with you about your nutrition. Oh, I guess, sorry if I'm like jumping all over the place, but I guess maybe another little question I might have is you mentioned like nutrition started to become like more awareness or more on your radar when you hit that like elite level. And like what for you became important at that time? Like, was there anything kind of more specific or was it just that routine that you talked about, like hitting your pre, your post-workout, stuff like that? Yeah. So my, me and my brother both became vegetarians when we were pretty young. He's older oh. than me. So he became one when I was five, I think. And wow. he was so cool that I wanted to also become a vegetarian. And my mom wouldn't let me until I, I was about seven. I kept asking like all the time if I could be one. And she was like, you can't become a vegetarian until you like eggs. Like you got to like eggs. And I did <laughs> not like eggs. So I pretended oh. that I liked eggs <laughs> and became a vegetarian. But her whole thing always was you got to get enough protein. I don't know why that was like what she she um, yeah. was stuck on when we were little kids. And so I feel like that's when I first became aware of like making sure I got enough protein. And then when I became an athlete, that was obviously an even higher thing. And then I've always been vegetarian. So making sure that I am eating complete proteins and getting enough of that has always been, I think, the main thing that I focused on. And that's definitely the origin of that is my mom would make us these protein shakes with those insure shakes. Yes. But they were like literally ice cream milkshakes. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. that she was telling us were, were great protein shakes. Now, so me and my brother would like beg for these protein shakes that were totally just milkshakes. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it did like, have some protein in there. It did. And it got your it calories up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I was a tiny, like little twiggy kid. So now I'm like fairly buff. So I think I need a lot of protein, but that's definitely something that I still struggle with. I think just because it's hard to get enough on a vegetarian diet unless you're being really intentional. And so I, I notice sometimes if I'm like feeling tired, I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I eat more or protein tonight, like extra protein tonight and tomorrow morning so that I feel better for tomorrow's session. And then I also sometimes supplement creatine because that's also hard to get with a vegetarian diet. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really I honestly think it was really wise of your mom. And I don't know if other people will disagree with me, but wise of her to kind of hold you back because yes, you can get enough protein on a vegetarian diet. However, you do have to be intentional about it. And so at a young age, it's like how many smart decisions about nutrition can a seven-year-old make really? And and even so, if a seven-year-old can make them, I would even kind of question that. Like, wait, seven-year-olds are supposed to be focusing on other things, you know, not putting so much thought into. And that's a lot to learn. Like, it's just too much to learn about at that age. So I, I kind of want to like, you know, give props to your mom for kind of like saying like eggs. Of course, there's other things, but <laughs> eggs were the thing that she was like, that at least has protein if you can at least eat that. And it sounds like you still did like dairy too, maybe. Yeah. yeah so that's really good too. Yeah. So that's awesome. And so she, 
your family, your parents weren't vegetarian. Is that correct? Or are they now? Yeah. Or They're still not, actually. Still not. Yeah. I have yeah. this effect on the people around me, though, where I accidentally make them vegetarian. Like My boyfriend can attest to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does happen. I, I'm not vegetarian, but when I lived in grad school with my roommate and best friend, she was vegetarian. And so it just kind of happened where for those two years, I, I still wasn't, and I didn't call myself that, but like I ate like 90% vegetarian because we like bought food together and we cooked together. We made lunches and dinners together and stuff like, so it just kind of happened. And yeah. And I think too, like, again, it takes just learning nutrition. You can absolutely get enough protein in, but like it's you just have to really understand food a little bit more to make sure you're getting in, especially as an athlete where your recovery is huge. Oh, and the creatine piece. I want to hit on that too. That's awesome. When I was in, was I in grad school or under, undergrad? I think I did this whole like literature review on creatine. And it was really interesting to hear that actually vegetarians, when you supplement with creatine, you can actually, this is crazy. And this is outdated research is from more than 10 years ago when I was in school, but you can actually then have higher creatine levels if you supplement with creatine than a meat eater can. Really? Yeah. That makes yeah sense. Even if you, sat- even, you saturate the levels. You super right? saturate it. Yep, yep. Yeah. Even if a meat eater is eating creatine, they're not as, or creatine supplements, they're not as responsive to it because they've already got creatine in their system. Oh, Versus a vegetarian, you're like, super responsive to the supplement. You actually super saturate and can get higher levels, which is, I don't want that to be the sole reason somebody turns vegetarian, but in certain sports, especially yours, where strength and muscle building is so important. And that's what creatine is really helpful for. It's actually a really interesting, like uh, performance enhancing concept. I'll just say concept. Yeah. It was interesting. I was talking to, I had, I think I was in a some sort of class in college that they talked about creatine and how it works. And they're like, yeah, but it, people supplement it, but it's not very useful because all it does is help with the first six seconds of power. And I was like, that's exactly what I need. I need like six seconds of power. Um, so that's exactly, I was like, I'm definitely going to keep supplementing creatine. Um, yeah. So yes. I actually need sure. to start doing that again. I've, I've, I've been a little lax on my, my supplements recently, but yeah. Sometimes just taking, list. yeah, su- t- taking supplements is it's that routine again, right? You have to build it into your routine. I myself, I'll be really good about a supplement regimen for like three months, and then I just somehow randomly forget. And it like I have to do weird things where like I move them around the house. Like sometimes <laughs> I have to take my supplements where it's like next to my toothbrush, so I remember. And sometimes I have to put it in the pantry near the breakfast foods, and I have to like put it in a place where my eyesight doesn't like forget it, ignore it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And then, like I said, it'll be working for like three months and then, and then I start ignoring it and I have to like figure out like what's the thing. So yeah, there's certain sports, rock climbing, weightlifting, sprinting, where creatine is a very effective and well-studied supplement. Like it's safe. It's well-studied. It's very effective at what it's trying to do, which is to give you energy for, yeah, really like two two to six seconds. And then therefore, if you have that extra source of energy, the reason people think it can help you with building or growing muscle and getting stronger is because it can help you in that immediate performance. And over a training period, it's like, well, if I have more energy, maybe I can do one extra set, one extra rep, push a little harder. And that's where you can get stronger or faster or build more muscle because you're able with that extra energy able to do a little bit more. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I use it. I like it when I'm doing like strength building phases because if it does help with that, like first seconds of power, like then I'm able to do a harder move and then I get the like neuromuscular 
benefits of doing that harder move, obviously, than if I were to not be able to do it. So that's, that's kind of my, that's my theory. at least. Yeah. That, yeah. That no, sense. it's, it's, it's a theory, but it's definitely backed by the research out there. So for sure. And like I said, creatine is one of those supplements that's been studied for, I don't know, 30 years now. So it's, We've got a lot of good versus some of these newer supplements on the market today that even I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm the dietitian here. And like, there's just so many things, um, but creatine and creatine and also caffeine that we talked about in the very beginning are two well-known in the proper dose, in the right setting, safe and effective for performance. So, yeah, for some reason, people think that creatine is banned. Uh, it's definitely not. It's you know very well studied as you said and is not a bad banned substance. But I've had people mention that before, and I'm like, no, it's it's not. Like, uh, we're actually, we actually get tested by uh, USADA on the USA climbing team, so we have people randomly show up at our house to watch us go to the bathroom. <laughs> wow, yes, <laughs> this is kind of crazy. Right, creatine is not banned. It's not a banned substance, even for professional athletes or NCAA athletes. I know that, like in the NCAA. Schools cannot give creatine to their athletes, but it's still not a banned ingredient. I think sometimes probably the reason creatine gets a bad reputation too is just because of its association to other muscle building products that maybe are banned or dangerous. And like if there's a product that has multiple ingredients in it and creatine is there, but also so is something else, that's kind of where then it's banned. Yeah. But if you're getting pure like creatine monohydrate and it's from a brand that's certified safe for sport, then good to go. Yeah. Yeah. I get everything. I try to get everything that's NSF certified. So the safe for sport certified. And yeah, for, I guess those who don't know, it's, it means that it's third-party tested to make sure it doesn't have any of the contaminations of other things. Cause there's like athletes who have been banned for four years based on a multivitamin they were taking that cross-contaminated with something else that the company was making. And that just sounds like an absolute nightmare. So I know. Absolutely. <laughs> and and it's it's scary too, right? Which is why you just got to know as an athlete, and thank you for bringing this up and talking about it. It's just like, be aware of what you're putting in your body and and do the extra research, ask the professional. And if you're unsure or if there's a question, like don't. <laughs> you know, because it's really sad when you hear those stories of people who get banned. Like I say sad because you don't, you don't know, like, did they do it intentionally or did they not know? And some of them I really think didn't know. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of stories like that, that they tell you at the, at the USOPC. So the US Olympic and Paralympic committee of that happening to athletes. So they tell you to be really careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Kyra, thank you again for sharing all of this information. We got in, we got into some good stuff, not only your personal story, climbing and resiliency and overcoming like the surgery, but it, we talked a lot of nutrition, which was really great getting that protein in as a vegetarian, creatine, caffeine, and even like that concept of weight to strength ratio and stuff that all that was awesome. I end every podcast with a few of the same questions. Are you ready okay. to play? Yes. All right. Uh, if you could eat one food every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? Uh, pasta. I love pasta. I'm Italian. So uh, like pasta with red sauce, I could I could eat every day. I think I basically do eat it every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Already doing it potentially. <laughs> love it. Pasta and red sauce uh, sticking to your cultural roots. <laughs> this might seem like an obvious question, but you never know. What is your favorite sport to participate in? Uh, I mean, I love rock climbing, uh, obviously, but I guess because we know that already, um, we've been playing a bunch of beach volleyball and that's been really fun. 
because yeah. I'm a terrible, I'm terrible at ball sports. It's like a climbing cliche is that we're terrible at, um, or a stereotype is that we're terrible at ball sports. And yeah, it's really helped me improve upon that. So. That's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Cool. How about as a spectator, do you have a favorite sport that you like to watch and cheer on from the sidelines? I really love, I've always loved watching gymnastics since climbing wasn't an Olympic sport. That was definitely the Olympic sport that I watched and related to the most, mostly because they were like mostly my same age and I was growing up watching and stuff. And then I love watching skiing, but now I've met a bunch of other Olympians in a bunch of different sports. And so I feel like it's, it's even diversifying even more. So I think any Olympic sport really is the true answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. Now and you're, you're a big fan. I love basketball. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Great. And then our final question, if there's a female athlete out there that you want to give a shout out to for being inspirational or a role model for any reason, whether somebody in your personal life or somebody well-known to the public, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's a hard question. I have so many, but I think probably one of the best is, or one of my favorites is Katie Ledecky, uh, the swimmer. Yeah who has obviously just broken record after record after record and is just kind of insane. I met her and I totally embarrassed myself. <laughs> just told her how amazing she was. Uh, but I got a photo with her. So like that was, I love that. I think she's really amazing. And then I love Simone Biles as well. Just again, I love watching people push the limits of their sports. And, you know, I think also, you know, speak about important things within the world as well. So, yeah. Yeah, both Simone Biles and Katie Ledecky definitely have pushed and, you know, broken limits in so many ways in their sports. And I love when uh, Olympians like fangirl or fanboy other Olympians because it's like, (laughs) you're an Olympian too, but it's just, you know, people are inspiring, right? You're inspired by other people too. So Totally. Yeah. Alice and Felix and Serena Williams as well. I have so many. (laughs) Yeah, we can keep going. I know. It's a hard question. (laughs) I love the, uh, the Serena documentary on HBO that like yes. through her pregnancy and stuff too. That was really cool. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet because I don't have HBO, but I did hear about it. So I might have to do like a one month subscription or something. <laughs> yeah. I watched it on the plane. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kyra, thank you again for joining. This was an awesome conversation. I think you were just really helpful and inspiring for other people to listen to, inspiring for other rock climbers, but just female athletes in general and your nutrition journey and pushing yourself and not being limited, not you know, letting certain things define you. So I, I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it myself too. Hey listeners. I was really interested in my conversation with Kyra about the caffeine bit in the gene. And I just had to remind myself. So I did a quick search online and I just wanted to share with you real quick, the information I found There is a gene CYP1A2 that codes for the enzyme, which is responsible for the metabolism of caffeine in the liver. So how well you metabolize caffeine in the liver is based on this gene. There is another gene as far as like how caffeine, your sleepiness or wakefulness affects you. And that depends on adenosine A2A receptors in the brain, which are modulated by this AHR gene. So there's kind of two things going on, how your body reacts to like getting 
being awake or not, or your sleepiness of caffeine and also how well you metabolize it. There's sort of two genes going on there, the AHR gene and the CYP1A2. Again, I think as our conversation shared, uh, most likely you already know your personal symptoms to caffeine, but when you do genetic testing, it's kind of cool to see those results. Okay, that was all I just wanted to share with you what I was a little unsure about during my live conversation and follow up with that information. Fans, thank you so, so much for listening. But before you go, I don't want you to miss out on things that I know you need. First, if you need help overcoming nutrition concerns, perhaps something we talked about in this episode, look no further. You have your female athlete specialist in sports dietetics right here. So head to my website, www.riseupnutritionrun.com and book a free call with me to learn more about how I may be able to help you. My flagship program, the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka the Fast Track, helps female athletes overcome disordered eating and perform at their highest level. The life-changing transformations that we help clients with don't just happen by listening to podcasts. It happens by taking action with people who are guiding you to your goals, aka me. So call me, head to the website, www.riseupnutritionrun.com and book it in. Take action, overcome your nutrition struggles as fast as possible. I am here to help. Second, don't forget about our amazing sponsors, Inside Tracker, insidetracker.com forward slash rise up for 20% off. Also, we are supported by Orgain. If you are an athlete in need of a quick fueling option with clean, good ingredients, look no further than Orgain. I absolutely love their ready-to-drink whey-based shakes for post-workout on the go. As a listener of this podcast, enjoy 30% off your first order with the code RISEUP30. All caps, RISEUP30. Last, if you are a dietitian, coach, or health professional needing a platform to manage your business, coordinate with your clients, invoice, communicate, and more, look no further than practice better. Get a 14-day free trial and 20% off your first four months by clicking the link in the show notes and using the code RISEUP20. I've been using practice better for four years now to manage my business, and I promise it's the best way to manage your practice. Look, ladies, since you are doing all of those things for you, my last request, if you're willing, is to do something for me. Please head over to our ratings and reviews, leave a five-star rating, leave a positive review if you like this podcast, and please tell a friend about this amazing podcast or an episode that you think they need so that you and others around you can be fierce, fit, and fueled. Until next time, fuel fiercely. Fuel fiercely.